And so we're looking at life rhythms. We're, we're looking at the life rhythms of Jesus. So we're, we're, we're taking the Gospels and we're, we're taking a more of a biography approach to them. So not so much trying to learn theology or the you know, parables. Jesus told a lot of stories. He told a lot of parables. Um, but we're looking to study the rhythms of his life. Like how did Jesus live? We know he was here for 33 years and he had a body just like we have and he walked around, he had friends, he liked eating, um, you know, there was, he, he had a normal life like we have. And, and so what were his routines? What were things that showed up in his life over and over and over? And last week we talked about solitude. That was a major, major theme in his life. He disappeared a lot into nature, right? He'd go on a mountain, a garden, he'd get on a boat and a lot of times, uh, you know, he didn't make appointments and stuff, you know, because he, he, he would just disappear. And when there was a crowd that needed him, he would go the other way. And so he, he was big on solitude and silence, places where he could get quiet, places where he would get alone and he would pray. Uh, our theme verse is Matthew 11. I'm going to read that before we talk about today's topic. Uh, Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened. And I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Basically, he's saying, learn from me. Live the way that I live. I'm gentle and I'm humble in heart. And if you do this, you'll find rest for your soul. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So today, I really want to answer the question, you know, how did Jesus lead his life? How did he decide who he was going to meet with, where he was going to go, what he was going to do? You know, there was so many people, you know, as soon as his, his ministry began, he was pretty world famous, as world famous as you could be at, the, at that time, 2,000 years ago, before, you know, social media and the whole world being connected. And so how did he decide when he would say things like, I must go through Samaria, when he was heading to Jerusalem and that was like seven or eight miles out of the way, why? Why would he do that? Or when, it, when his parents got frustrated at him because they lost him, they went to the temple with little, you know, um, adolescent Jesus, and they're heading home, and they, they don't have Jesus with them, right? Some great parents there. No, I'm kidding. Um, no, <laughs> hey, I've lost, I'm not even going to go there. <laughs> so can't even speak to that right now. But uh, how do you lose a six-year-old? Well, I guess there's ways. Um, uh, but anyhow... <laughs> One time when I was about that age, I, I, uh, at University Mall, I, my mom wouldn't let me get something. So I hid in the middle of a, of a rack of clothes. And believe it or not, they shut down University Mall. They had armed guards and all the, the exits. My, I'll never forget. And I knew, I mean, I knew something was up. But at that point, it was like I was so far invested in this plan. You know what I mean? That, that I couldn't back away from it. That was one of my earliest memories is hiding at <laughs> University Mall and shutting that thing down. And uh, anyway, God love, God love your soul, Mom. I'm so thankful. But anyways, how did, you know, how did he decide what was important and what, and what wasn't important? And I think the key to this was he lived a surrendered life to the will of his father. And that's what he said over and over. When his parents showed up at the temple, and they had lost him, and they are like, Jesus, come on, we're your parents. You can't be doing that. He said, I must do the will of the one who sent me. And he said this over and over and over in different stories and interactions with people. We see him constantly referring back to the, the surrendering to the will of his father. 
And that word surrender is a word that we don't really like in a democratic nation. We don't want to give anything away. We don't want to give our will away. We don't want to give power away. We don't want to give our rights away. The, the surrender means to yield to you know, your power or control or possession of something over to another person or entity, to, to, to surrender. The first time I could see, I, I looked up that, that, that word surrender and, you know, in, in battles, I think it was around 25 AD was the earliest battle that I could find where they, you know, the other side was just whipping their tail. And they knew we were either going to give up or we're going to die. And so this battle was between these two nations, and it was around AD, AD 25. And so, so they didn't all just lose everything. They started, like, pulling out handkerchiefs. Some, some stories say they, they pulled their bed sheets out and started waving it, right, as a, as a sign of surrender, basically saying, please stop. You, we're, we're done. We're, 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 we're yielding our will. We're yielding ourselves over to the, to the other side. Now, to a general... This flag right here is not good. <laughs> to someone trained in war fighting, this is like last case scenario where we give up and we give in. But in the life of a Christian, this flag means absolute victory. That when we get to a place in our life where we surrender over to God, our will and our mind, our emotions and the things that we have and hold dear, it doesn't mean we lose it. In the end, it means we actually gain so much more. And so, and so surrender in the life of a Christian is what begins our salvation. Surrender is what begins it. And it's surrender that keeps us on the journey. That, that you know, it's not just a one-time thing. You're here this morning, more than likely, somewhere in your life, God moved in your heart and your mind or your soul, and, and you decided, okay, I don't really want to be in the driver's seat anymore. Right? You remember those bumper stickers? I used to see them quite a bit, that God is my co-pilot. You ever seen one of those? I, th I always thought it was funny when I seen it because I'm thinking, well, maybe you need to get out of the driver's seat. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, you know, because nobody likes a backseat driver anyways, right? You know, like maybe, maybe, maybe you should try this option. You get in the, in, the, in the passenger seat and let God drive for a little while. And, and I think that's what it really means to, to become a Christian, is, it, is it's, it's letting go of the reins of our life. It's doing the opposite of that old saying, I'm the captain of my own soul. And that's cute for a while, until you hit something that you can't get through, a storm that you don't know how to navigate, and there's a lot of risk involved, and there's other people involved, and you hit the top of your competency, and you can't think of a way out. And then all of a sudden, you're not the captain. <laughs> Even an atheist prays then, you know what I'm saying? You know, when we get to the ends of our ropes. And so surrender is not a bad thing. It's, it's a really, really good thing. And the best that I can tell, there are three main areas where we see Jesus surrendering in the Gospels. Three main areas, three main things that he surrenders over to his Father. The first one is, is we see Jesus surrendering his will. His will. And when I say will, I don't mean what your grandparents have written up in their safe or your parents, you know, and what they're going to pass down to you when they go away. And we're not talking about possessions here. When, when the Bible uses that word will, it means what you wish or you've determined shall be done. What you want. Your will. And over and over and over, it's crazy. And I'm just going to give you three different times, but 
All throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus referring to his will and his Father's will and how all he wanted in his life was to do the will of his Father. John 4, he said it was his food, what was keeping him alive. His substance is to do the will of the one who sent me to finish his work. John 5, verse 30, I can do nothing of my own, Jesus speaking. I judge as God tells me. Therefore, my judgment is just because I carry out the wishes, the wants, the will of the one who sent me, not my own. John 6, I'm just going to give you three. For I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. This is a rhythm in his life. This was what he wanted. This was what he desired. When, I, when somebody asks me, what is the will of God for my life? That's a big question. A lot of times we, we, we think that the will of God is like a place. It's a career or it's, or it's a, a position. You know, if I go to school long enough, you know, I think God's calling me to be this or that. And, and I think the will of God is not a position or a place. The will of God is a person who's completely surrendered over to God's will. That's the will of God. Because one phone call can put you in that place. And one phone call can, can give you that position. That sometimes we think of the will of God as, as person, people, places, things. But it's really, it's, it's, I think it's a heart fully devoted, fully surrendered over. And this was a common theme in the life of Jesus. So much that, you know, Jesus taught his disciples a lot of things. He was a rabbi. He called them, and they left their career. In full time, they were just followed. That's how people learned in that day. It wasn't so much these massive universities where you got hundreds of kids in, a, you know, in, a, in an auditorium. In that day, you learned a trade from one person. You had a rabbi, and you lived with them. You followed their life. You know, if, if, if you were going to be, become a shoemaker, you went and lived with a shoemaker, and you watched how they lived, and you watched how they made shoes, and that's how you learned. Well, these disciples are following Jesus. They're his, his students, and he's teaching them every day. He's teaching them all kinds of like powerful things that we're still learning. I'm still learning. But there was only one thing that I can find, that the, the one thing that Jesus was asked by his disciples that they wanted him to teach them, and it was how to pray. And that was it. I haven't found anything else that they asked for. And I think it's because Jesus, his prayers turned into prophecies. Like everything he prayed happened. Not like just some of the time. Like, I mean, he, he was batting 100. And the disciples could not understand how they're walking with this guy every day. They're following him. And they had trouble constantly where their prayers weren't getting answered. And so finally, they asked, Jesus, teach us how to pray, Matthew chapter 6. And they weren't really asking how to pray because they all had a way that they prayed. They wanted to know how to pray effectively. And that's where we get the Lord's Prayer that most of you probably know, and we're not going to go through it all today. But I want you to see how, what the Lord's Prayer is sandwiched in. You ever made a sandwich? They got the bread and, you know, on, on both sides. It's not a sandwich without the, the, the bread and inside is the meats. So he's teaching his disciples, me and you, he's teaching us not just how to pray, but how to pray effectively. And right out of the gate in the Lord's Prayer, before he teaches them to ask for their daily bread, before he teaches them to ask for forgiveness, before he teaches them to ask for anything, he puts this right at the beginning. It's the first loaf of bread. After this manner pray, you know, my, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. 
your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And so here's Jesus not only surrendering to the will of his father, but now he's teaching his disciples and us one of the key components in our prayer life and in our lives is that before we ask God for anything, we've got to stop and ask ourselves, am I surrendered to the will of God? And what does that even mean? What does that look like? At the end of the prayer, and I put it in your notes in the King James Version because a lot of versions leave this out. At the end of the prayer, after we ask for our daily bread and forgiveness of our sins and you know, all that stuff, that's good and it's meat and we need it. At the end, he ends it, yours is the kingdom. Yours is the power. Yours is the glory forever and ever. Amen. And so here's the most popular, powerful prayer I think that's ever been recorded. And it's not so much the words, it's the pattern. That as we come to God as Christians, the first thing we want to ask ourselves is, Lord, is my will, is my will surrendered to you? Do I want this to happen more than I want you? Am I so bent on this happening in life that, that I'm, more cons- I'm, I'm going through so much mentally, I'm exhausted because I really, really, really want this to happen, but maybe it's really, really, really not supposed to happen or the timing's not right? When we pray your will be done, number one, it helps us to determine what's our will and what's his. But the second thing I believe it does is it protects us from, manipul- from manipulative people. Because last time I checked, maybe you've never met a manipulative person, but when somebody wants something so bad, they might try to use you to get it. Maybe you've never had that happen before. Or they'll use you to build their little kingdom. And when, as a Christian, I pray, Lord, your will be done, I am saying, I don't want my will, I don't want Bobby Jones's will, I don't want my neighbor's will, I don't want, I mean, no, my, my number one priority in life, God, is to see your will be done on earth as it already is in heaven. So I'm not making it up. He's already established it. I just wanted to come here. It protects me. It quarantines me from people who want to try to use me. It quarantines you from people who want to use your gifts and your talents. And they think, well, that's great. Won't you come over here and help? You know, like, if it's not in your will, Lord, come on, somebody. If it's not in your will, I don't want it. The Old Testament word, will, is used for stuff and inheritance and passing things down. And when we pray this prayer, not only does it protect us, I think it's a filter because not everything that comes into your life may necessarily be from God. They might be giving it away. <laughs> like, but before you take it, you better ask yourself, is it in the will for me? God, is, is this mine? Lord, I just, I, I want your, is this house mine? It's a good deal. I can't tell you how many houses out here I've walked around. I've poured oil in the, in the, in the front yards of them. Tried to buy a house out here for nine years. I gave up. Finally, God, gave, then God you know, answered the prayer. I'd Jericho march them. I mean, I'm not kidding. I'd have worship going. Y'all think I'm joking, but I am not. You know, and I knew just for sure this one's it. This is going to be it. They're going to take a half price offer. This is going to be it. <laughs> it's decreed in the name of the Lord. This is going to happen, right? It didn't happen. It finally did after I'd given up, right, and said, all right, this is it. I guess it's not in the cards, but because not every good thing is a God thing. 
And most stuff in life that's free is not free. And so, and so as God begins to bless your life, this prayer is a filter. Lord, if it's not for me, I don't want it. If this relationship's not for me, I don't want it. I know this is a great promotion here that they're offering me at work, but what kind of price does it come at? Is it in your will for me? And I believe God will answer that prayer for you. It's a filter. It's a filter that, that, that Lord, if, if this is for me, I want it. If it's not, God, I don't, the last thing I want to do is take somebody else's blessing because there's enough to go around. And so, so he teaches his disciples. I mean, this is, I think this is a key to our prayer life, that our prayers will become prophecies, not when we ask God for what we want, but when we ask God for things that he's already established. We're praying his will, praying his will. The second thing we see Jesus do, he surrenders his life. He surrenders his life. So his will and then over and over and over, we see these verses where he talks about laying down his life. I'm just going to give you a couple of them really quick. John 10, 17, the reason my father loves me is because of this. I'm, 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 I surrendered my life. I'm laying down my life only to take it up again. Matthew 16, verse 25, this is a hard verse. Whoever wants to save their life will, will lose it, will surrender it. Whoever loses their life for me will find it. Now, that's some hard verses there. That word, that word life, is, it, it, it's where we get the English word psyche. And so Jesus is, is saying, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm surrendering my, my wishes, my, what, the way I thought life was supposed to be, and then I'm, giving, I'm surrendering my mind, my emotions, my thoughts. I'm laying my life down. It's, 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 it's hard to do, but it was a theme in the life of, of Jesus. I heard a story about a, a little, little boy who was, went to bed and he fell out of the bed and his mom came running in the room and ran up beside the bed and said, what happened? How'd you fall out? He said, well, I guess I just stayed where I got in. And I think what happens in the life of Christians is we do that. We give God a little bit and we kind of just stay where we get in. And as we, as we begin to walk with God, he's going he's gonna to ask us to give things a lot of times that we don't want to give. He asks us, I mean, these verses are hard to, to read. They're hard to live. Is lay, laying our lives down? That, that how, how do we find our life when we lay our life down? And, and I think what, what the, the truth is here is that we live in a way where we're willing to give up all that we are to be all that we could be. And so we hold on to, to things loosely in this world. We know that we can't take it with us. I think one way that we do this is, is, we, is we remind ourselves every day, and some people are better at this than I am, that, that every day is a gift, right? I didn't buy this body. I didn't buy this mind. I didn't buy the life that I have. Neither, neither did you. That, that, that the more we stay in this vein of gratitude, that life's a gift, because you know there's going to come a point where there's going to be a time where things go back to him, things that we love and things that we cherish. And so Jesus made this a regular part of the rhythm of his life, laying it down, laying it down. And it's hard to do. That's why it's real quiet in here. And there's one particular spot where I, I, I'm so glad that it's in the Bible because I think it helps us see clearly 
the life of Jesus, that he was, a, he was God, but he was also man. And when we, th- when we think about, you know, laying our lives down for God, oftentimes, right now, more than likely, it's probably something negative that you're thinking about. That if I do this, you know, if I lay my life down for God, I'm going to end up being, like, in some third world country, you know, doing, you know, like, I'm, I, I'm gonna, he's going to ask me to do something I don't want to do. The will of God. Or we use that, that terminology, the, the, you know, surrendering to the will of God, like, like it's, it's going to be something negative. There's a, a negative condemnation to it. And, and a lot of times it's this story that we're, I'm going to end with that, that connects it. That Jesus is in the garden and he's with his disciples and he's getting ready to, you know, really lay everything down, his, his, his physical life. And he gets his disciples with him. He says, hey, guys, can you pray with me for just a little bit? I got some heavy stuff that's just right in front of me. And they fall asleep, right? They, they're distracted. And he begins to pray. So He's so heavy in his heart and his mind that the Bible says he's, he's sweating great drops of blood. Like it's, he's, he's, he's a lot of anxiety. He's got a lot on his heart, a lot on his soul. And this is what he says. He's going down and he prays. Luke 22, he withdrew about a stone's throw beyond his disciples and he knelt down and he said, Father, if you're willing, take this from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And I think that this is the moment where we see that Jesus not only surrenders his will, not only surrenders his life, but he surrenders his heart. And when I say heart, Combine life and will together, your heart. Your heart is, is the seed of desire. When the Bible talks about the heart of a person, it's talking about you, but not only you, but what you love, what you go to work for, what's important to you, your passions. And here is Jesus in a moment, and I'm so glad that, that, the, that it's in the Bible, where what he thought was supposed to happen was not what was happening. If we can read between the lines here, have you, ever, have you ever had life hand you something and you prayed that prayer? I really don't want this right now. You don't have to raise your hand. <laughs> and I know that this is not every day, right? Or God asks you or life demands of you to do something where it is not at all what you wish or want. And here's this moment in the life of Jesus where that is unfolding. And he has a decision. He could have got up and left. Bible talks about, he could have called for a, a, a legion of angels to come and rescue him. But he stayed and he surrendered his heart. Not that he only surrendered, he entrusted it to God in his lowest moments. But this is what I, I hope that we can see together this morning. Because I'm a bit of a melancholy. You've probably noticed that. I don't say I'm a pessimist, I'm a realist, right? The glass is not half full or half empty, it's just like a little bit of both. It's half full and half empty. But I think this whole idea of surrendering our heart and our life and our will to God is scary depending on how we view God. Because if we think God is gonna take something from us and never give it back, it's very scary. If we think that God is, is mad at us and he's up there just like waiting on us to mess up so he can start penalizing us for things, 
or we think that God is going to eventually just take everything that we love. Because and, and when, when we talk about the will of God, we often go to extremes. It's hurricanes, it's natural disasters, it's, it's bad, bad, bad stuff. But last time I checked, there's more sunrises and cyclones. <laughs> last time I checked, if I look in my life, there's been more good days than bad. There's been more peaceful days than painful days. And what I hope that we can see together this morning is that maybe the will of God and surrendering over to the will of God is the happiest place that we can be. It's the safest place that we can be. It's the most fulfilling place that we can be. Because I think when we, when we surrender our today to God, when we surrender him, to him everything today, it basically makes him responsible for our tomorrows. We're entrusting him with what's about to happen. We're entrusting him with our future. And I think so much of anxiety comes from worrying about what could happen, what might happen. But when we trust God, when we can say, I, I surrender all, it's like giving God the responsibility, letting him do the heavy lifting on our tomorrows. He assumes responsibility for that. And I love this verse in Romans 12 where it talks about the will of God. Paul is writing and he says, this is, this is how he's seen the will of God. It was beautiful. It was perfect, right? It was pure. It was exciting. It was probably the greatest thing that we can ever experience or live into is the will of God. And I want you to see that in your life as well. So this is what we're gonna do. We've got some communion on the table there. If you would take that or in front of you in the pew and we're gonna take communion together. And so we don't do this a whole lot as a church. We do it regularly. But I think one of the amazing things that communion reminds us of is that we can trust God with our tomorrows and we can trust God with our life. And that we may have bad days and we may go through painful things, but it, you know, the worst thing is never the last thing. <laughs> that in this life that we've been called into as Christians, there's always resurrection. That when we lay our life down or we lay anything down, oftentimes it comes back into our, into our, our world tenfold or twentyfold or a hundredfold. And communion reminds me of that. That Jesus did lay his life down and he did go through seasons of surrender and loss but he raised it back up. And that's the life that he's inviting us all into as well. And so take that bread that's there on the top. It's a kind of a double layer there. And I'm gonna pray over it. And I'm gonna ask Austin to come up. He's gonna pray over the cup. But Father, we thank you so much for your body. We thank you that communion is more than just something that we, we do as a church, but it's an invitation to live in the rhythm of the life that you lived that you did give your life, you did surrender your will, you did surrender these things over 
but there was also a resurrection on the third day. And there's the promise of hope and there's a promise of your coming. And we thank you so much, Lord, that you not only was it your message, you, you modeled it for us. So if we willingly lay our lives down and surrender things to you, that it's the greatest way that we could ever live, that just like your body was resurrected, we thank you that there's still power, Lord, today in brokenness and going through things that we don't really want to go through, but somehow, some way, you put the pieces back together. And so we pray over this bread today and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name. You could take the bread. As we move on to, to the juice representing Jesus' blood, I'm gonna bow our heads again and we're gonna pray. Lord, we know that there's no power in this juice. What we do know is that there's power in the heart behind it. There's power in our surrender to it. There's power in our acknowledgement to it. Now you willingly chose to obey your Father, our Father, to lay your life down and to shed your blood for every single person in here, for every single person on the earth. And I pray that as we take this cup, that we can remember your sacrifice. We can remember the example that you set and that you told us to follow because there's power in that. You demonstrated the heart behind every command. I pray we can walk in your footsteps. I pray we do this in remembrance of you, Jesus. We can walk in victory. We can walk in surrender, just like you did. Thank you for your sacrifice. Let us take the cup. <clears throat>